you to open back to the passage that we just read for us a few moments ago as our brother Todd began our assembly together this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16 is where we will be studying together from God's Word this morning. As you're turning back to that text, let's just read that text once again to get our minds back into what is being said to us here in 1 Corinthians or 1 Samuel chapter 16. We want to begin reading again at verse 1 and read down through verse 13. 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? He said, In peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at, the, at, the appearance, at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for God sees not as man sees, For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Uh, Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he." Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, and Samuel arose and went to Ramah. For a few minutes this morning, what I would like for us to focus our minds on are the words of the Lord in verse 7 here in our text. And this, this is these words that appear on the screen that God sees not as man sees. Some Sundays, things just kind of seem to work out. Everything maybe you might think is coincidental. But for those of us who are believers in God and His Son, Jesus Christ, I think we can say many times that it is providential. And I believe it has certainly been the case this morning, as Brent's already alluded to in the first session this morning, some things that he had to say to us at the nine o'clock hour are going to tie in very well with some things that we're going to talk about in this hour. And even if you were in uh, Brother Drew Parsons' uh, class in the large classroom this morning, some of the things that he talked about 
the way that our world looks at things, just a worldview, our perspective on life and the world is going to tie in with some things that we're going to say in our lesson this morning. So if you were here at nine o'clock, if you sat in Drew's class uh, during the Bible class period, uh, hopefully all of this will tie together and it will give us some good things for us to, cons- to continue to consider and to meditate upon as this week goes on. Before we really get into the text here as to what is going on in 1 Samuel chapter 16, I want to just lay a little bit of background uh, for us. I'm sure many of us have read this passage many times, especially if we grew up and had uh, parents that were Christians that uh, took us to an assembly of God's people on a regular basis. We probably know this account or this story of what is going on here in 1 Samuel 16, but it may have been a while since we've looked at that text And there may be some in the audience that have never uh, looked at the text that we're going to consider this morning. So by way of reminder and background, the the Israelites, you might remember several chapters back, going all the way back to chapter 8 of this same book, that they wanted a king. And they wanted a king for three reasons. You don't, don't have to turn back there in your Bible, just turn back there in your mind. We're not going to be going back and looking at all these passages, just referencing them this morning. But if you go back and look at 1 Samuel chapter 8 at verse 5, Israel gives three reasons for wanting a king over them. They no longer wanted a judge. Number one, Samuel, who was the last judge, was getting very old. He was getting advanced in years. Number two, his sons were not fit to be judged. They, they did not have the character. They did not have the respect for God, the reverence for God and God's word and for God's people that Samuel himself had. And number three, It tells us in that verse, 1 Samuel 8 and verse 5, that they wanted to be like everybody else. They wanted to be like all the nations around them. They saw all of these mighty and great nations living around them. And they said, we want to be just like everyone else. And as a result of that, Samuel, you remember in that chapter, was very displeased with that and took his displeasure and his um, complaint, if you will, to the Lord himself And the Lord reassured Samuel, well, they're not rejecting you. They're really, in essence, rejecting me as being king. But nevertheless, the Lord says, give the people what they are asking for. And so Saul is chosen to be the king of Israel. You can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 15 through 17. In chapter uh, 1 Samuel 9 and verse 2, we read a description about Saul, that he was a tall man. He was a strong man. He was a very handsome man. He, He towered uh, literally head and shoulders above his own people that he was about to uh, lead, that he was about to be king of. And we also know about Saul something more than just his outward appearance. We know something about who he was on the inside as he began to reign as king, staying there in First Samuel chapter 9 at verse 21. The Bible tells us there that he began his reign with humility. But as time went on, as is often the case with someone who is put into that particular position, He became proud to the point where he stopped trusting in God, to the point where he stopped listening to God, to the point where he stopped obeying God and stopped depending upon God. And this lack of trust led to Saul eventually disobeying the word of God, taking matters into his own hand. When we come to 1 Samuel chapter 13, and he wonders where Samuel is for him to come in the allotted time that Samuel told him he would come and offer the sacrifice. And so Saul says, hey, I'm king. I'll just offer the sacrifice myself. 
And at that particular point, and then we remember, especially in chapter 15, what precedes what we're going to look at this morning, that Saul uh, doesn't act very kingly there. But he says, well, the people, they, they're the ones that are responsible for not totally destroying the Amalekites and everything that they had. But it eventually, his lack of trust, his lack of humility, his lack of dependence upon God caused him to become disobedient to God. And as a result of that, you remember that God told him that he would lose his position as king. And so all of those events have happened prior to what we just read and what we're going to think about this morning from chapter 16. Well, after God had rejected Saul as king, he then tells, as we have already read this morning, Samuel, his prophet, his messenger, to go and to anoint a new king. And God had already selected one of Jesse's sons to be the next king of Israel. It wasn't the case that Samuel had to travel all over Israel to find the next man who was going to lead God's people on earth. But God himself had chosen a certain man. As we just read here in verse 2, Samuel is afraid that Saul might kill him for anointing a new king when Saul is still on the throne. Saul is still the king of God's people, but God, as we just read in verses 2 and 3, assures Samuel that I will take care of you. You, you get an animal, you say that you're going to sacrifice to the Lord, and that's exactly what he did. He invited all of Jesse's household to join him in that sacrifice. Samuel comes to Bethlehem. He gathers Jesse and his sons to himself. And the first son that he sees is the oldest born. He sees Eliab, or Eliab, however his name is to be pronounced. And because he was Jesse's oldest son, I don't know anything else about him other than that he was the oldest son. Maybe there was something about his physical appearance like the physical appearance of Saul that just kind of looked kingly to Samuel. But for whatever reason, Samuel thought, well, surely this is God's chosen man. Surely this is the one among all of Jesse's sons who he wants to be the next king of his people. But God said no, didn't he, to Eliab. And then Samuel talked to the second oldest of Jesse's sons, Abinadab. And Samuel thought at first, well, surely this must be the one whom God has chosen to be king of his people. But God said no to him. And so it is with the thirdborn, Shammah or Shammah, the third oldest of Samuel thought, maybe this is the one that God has chosen. And God said no to him. In fact, God said no to seven of Jesse's sons. And then Samuel said to Jesse, is this, is, is this all of your sons? And he said, no, there is the youngest who is out here in the pastures tending to my sheep. And of course, he brought him in. And when David, the very least, the very youngest of all of Jesse's sons, appeared before Samuel, God no longer said no, but now God said yes. And let me ask you this morning, as you're thinking through all of that, in particular as it relates to this statement that we are trying to emphasize this morning in our sermon, that God sees not as man sees, what, what did God see in David? Why was it the case that God didn't choose the oldest or even the second oldest or the third oldest of all of Jesse's sons, why was it that he chose the youngest among them? Why did God choose David? It is because God was looking at this situation from a totally different perspective than even a very holy and righteous man like Samuel was looking. And like many of us, I'm sure, if we had been in Samuel's shoes, would have 
looked at this situation as well, that God was looking not at the outside in relation to David, but God was looking at the inside. Although outwardly, maybe David didn't look too much like a king. Uh, you remember, you know, later on in, in this book of 1 Samuel when uh, the Philistines are taunting the Israelites and just daring them to send out someone or maybe several someones from among their number to stand up to their great giant Goliath that David at first puts on Saul's armor and it doesn't fit. <laughs> maybe he doesn't look like a king like Saul looked like a king on the outside. But inwardly, I would suggest to you that David looked exactly like the man that God was looking for to be the next king of his people. Now turn back in your Bible just a few pages to 1 Samuel chapter 13 for a moment. 1 Samuel chapter 13, and this is where uh, Saul's patience runs out and he takes matters into his own hands, what we just alluded to a few moments ago. But in verse 13 of 1 Samuel 13, I notice what Samuel said to Saul after he finally did come. He said, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. If you had just been patient, if you had just waited on me and waited on God, things would have worked out even for you. But, verse 14, now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Of course, God knew Saul's heart when Saul was selected to be king. God knew what his heart would become as he continued to be king. But Samuel, speaking for God here, says to King Saul, no, the Lord is looking for a particular kind of man. He's not really that concerned about what he looks like on the outside. No, he is very much concerned about what he looks like on the inside. He is looking for a man after his own heart. God, in this situation that we're discussing today from chapter 16, was seeing in a totally different way this entire situation, this entire scene, than man sees as we think about that statement, first of all, I want us to ask ourselves the question, how does man see? And I'm using the word man to mean mankind. How do we as human beings see things? Well, we often are kind of like Samuel, aren't we? We, we, we often are looking at the external of a person or the externals of a circumstance or situation, and we are making judgments just on what we can see, based on what we can see with our physical eyes. As we think about that particular thought, I want us to look at a couple of passages in the New Testament along these lines. First of all, from the Gospel of John in John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Now let's begin reading it here at verse 12. John chapter 8 at verse 12. Jesus then again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. How, how often are we, even today, even as those of us who claim to be followers of Christ, how often are we kind of like the Pharisees here? 
in this conversation that Jesus had with them. And for several chapters now in the book of John, that there, there is this uh, a conflict that is just growing greater and greater. There is this divide, if you will, that is growing further and further apart, that Jesus and the, the religious establishment are growing further apart. They are becoming more at odds with one another because Jesus is continuing to say and to show that he truly is the Messiah of God, that he is deity, God in the flesh. And they increasingly, as he gives one proof after another, after another, they increasingly are saying, no, he's not. And they are becoming more antagonistic against him. And Jesus says, this is your problem, basically, verse 15, that you are judging according to the flesh. They were looking at this man who was claiming to be the Savior of the world, the, the Christ of God, and saying, well, this doesn't fit our image. He doesn't look like who we thought the Messiah would look like. But how often are we just like the Pharisees and we judge people, we judge circumstances and situations in our life according to the flesh? We're looking at the outward things where God is looking at what is inward, what is true. And then in the book of James, James gives us this situation here and gives us some instructions as to how we are to view other people. Uh, James chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, James writes here, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand over there, sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? When James is writing about maybe a situation that was going on here in the first century among God's people and something that can take place even among us today. And he tells us once again that when we judge others solely on the basis of what we can see on the outside, that it's not just a bad thing that we have done. But he tells us in no uncertain terms there at verse 4 that when we make distinctions among ourselves, when we prejudge people or we judge them wrongly just on the basis of what we can see on the exterior, that we have become judges with evil motives. In essence, we have set ourselves in the place of God. And we have begun to judge one another in a way that we don't have a right to do that. We have judged others with evil motives. God, James goes on to remind us, as we just read here in verse 5, that God himself, the creator of all of us, that he chose those who were poor, that he chose those who were downtrodden, he chose those who were outcast as far as the world was concerned to be a part of his kingdom. That doesn't mean, James isn't telling us here that there are no rich people. There are no wealthy people. There, there are no people whom, whom the world in some sense may look up to that have not become a part of God's kingdom. But he's saying, generally speaking, God has chosen those who sometimes we as God's people look down upon. And we don't see them in the way that God sees them. In our American culture, especially today, we often judge a person's worth or a person's value 
based upon what we can see on the outside. We, we judge the worth and the value of a particular person based upon their physical appearance. Maybe they are like Saul. Maybe they're tall. Uh, maybe they have broad shoulders. Maybe it's just some, they're beautiful on the outside. That's the way that God made that particular person. And so we assign them, at least mentally in our mind, a value that they are more valuable or worth more than someone else who maybe doesn't have that same appeal or attraction to us on a physical level. We often judge a person's worth based upon their occupation. You know, if they're a doctor, if they're a lawyer, if they're a what, whatever you want to fill in that blank, then they are worth more to our culture and our society than someone else who does a different kind of job. We often judge a person's worth based upon their outward abilities. If someone has the ability to uh, be a, a great athlete or a great musician or a great artist or what, whatever talent or gift that God has given to them, that those particular people are worth more than someone else. We judge a person's worth based on their worth, on the amount of wealth that they have, the social status that they have in our community, their personality, and on and on the list can go about all of these physical outward traits or qualities. And our culture for a long time now, I think, has been feeding us this message that it is the outward person and it is the outward characteristics, those kinds of things that are what's important and what truly determine a person's value. Because I think we as people often have the tendency to just look skin deep at people, but also at circumstances and situations that we deal with in our lives. And so we find ourselves from time to time looking at different folks, looking at different circumstances the way that Samuel did, the way that the Pharisees did, and just judging people according to the flesh. In contrast to that, though, we want to ask this question, and I think it's already been answered in our text this morning. But to kind of flesh out that, that answer about how God sees. We've already alluded to the fact that God doesn't just see our who we are on the outside. He sees who we truly are on the inside. He is looking inside of us. He is looking internally into us. He can see our hearts. I realize that's something that we as people cannot do. <laughs> Unless someone shows us uh, evidence of who they really are. We can't see into a, another person's heart. I mean, I don't know about you. A, a lot of times I have trouble even seeing my own heart, honestly. But God can see my heart better than I can see that. But sometimes we, we think that, yeah, we, we know exactly what a person is thinking. We assign motives to someone. But unless they have said something or done something in some way outwardly that we can say that is evidence that leads us to this conclusion about the kind of heart that they have, we can't see their heart, but God can. God knows the conscience of every person here this morning. God knows exactly what you're thinking right now in every moment of your earthly existence. God knows the values that you have, maybe the values that you claim you have and what your true values are by the life that you live. God knows your will. He knows all of that about all of us. That's where God's focus is. Having said that, though, we want to ask this question about David as we come back to our text. If you turn uh, back there to 1 Samuel chapter 16 and look at what is said about David in verse 12, 
It tells us that he was ruddy or he had this, this reddish uh, appearance or reddish skin with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. Was David a good-looking man from a, on a physical level? Yes, I think we would have to say that. But is that why God chose him to be king? And the answer is emphatically no. That had absolutely nothing to do with God's choice of making David his next king. God chose David because, as we've already read this morning from chapter 13, God knew the kind of man that David was and the kind of man that David would be. That he knew that David was a man after his own heart. Uh, we, we read those very words back in 1 Samuel 13. Let's turn over to the book of Acts just very quickly. In Acts 13, as uh, Paul and Barnabas have come to Antioch and they're kind of giving a history lesson, if you will, of God's people to this Jewish audience. And they begin to talk about David here. Notice what is said at verse 22, that after God, after he had removed him, Saul, from being king, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart. But he doesn't stop there. He says, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Does that mean that David never sinned? <laughs> that David was like Jesus as he lived here upon earth, as Jesus said about himself in relation to doing his father's will, that he, he, had, he never did anything that was, that was not pleasing in his father's sight. When he came to the end of his life in John chapter 17, in that great prayer that he had fully accomplished the work, the mission, the will that God had given him to do, no, David certainly wasn't perfect. I mean, we can think of several examples from the scriptures that we know of and maybe perhaps other times in his life where he sinned, where he did not trust in God, where he did not do God's will as he should have done. But generally speaking throughout his life, here was a man after his own heart, God's own heart. He was a man who would do God's will. And that's why God chose him to sit on the throne and reign over his king, over his people as king. Again, I would say to you that God is not truly focused, as we too often are, on our physical traits, whether for good or for bad. And I think we see how God sees us and how God sees life and, and just God's way of thinking about things. As our brother Todd mentioned in his prayer this morning, I think alluding to the words that, that are found in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55 that, you know, God says there, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. That God's ways and thoughts are so much greater and so much higher and so much deeper than our own. But I believe we see the way that God sees people and the way that God looks at situations in life by looking at Jesus Christ. We can learn a lot about our great God by looking at the Son, Jesus the Christ. Just a few passages, references for you to think about this morning. Back to the book of Isaiah in chapter 53, Isaiah 53 at verse 2. Here is what the prophet said about the Messiah, the Christ to come, Jesus himself. Isaiah 53 and verse 2, he says, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground, listen to this, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. I believe the prophet is saying to us when Jesus came to earth, yes, he came and he, he came to be a king as our brother Phil Robertson talked to us about here not long ago. 
uh, from John chapter 18. And Pilate asking Jesus that question, are you a king? And, and Jesus answered, yes, yes, I am a king. But he was not a king in the, in the sense that the world thought of a person being a king. I, I believe Isaiah is telling us here, if we had lived during the time when Jesus walked here upon this earth, Jesus would have just kind of fit into the crowd. I mean, he, his looks were average. He would have looked like any other Jewish man about 30 years of age, and yet he was the Messiah. The Father did not choose to send Jesus to this world wearing robes and sitting on a gold throne and just uh, looking or maybe being head and shoulders taller than all of his people. But Isaiah says about his physical appearance, there's nothing that would draw us physically to Jesus to say, aha, this man is the Christ, the Son of God. And that's how Jesus chose to introduce his son to the world. In the Gospel of John, as you might remember, uh, some disciples of John the baptizer, uh, John sees Jesus walking by and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and encourages and urges his disciples to go and follow Jesus. And several of them do here in John chapter 1. But you remember that one of those uh, who followed Jesus was Philip. And Philip found his friend Nathanael and said to him in verse 45 of John 1, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, verse 46, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus, God in the flesh, the Son of God, the Christ, the Savior of the world, he came from a very insignificant town. God, it was not in God's wisdom that the Son of God, the King, should be born in Jerusalem. No, he was born in this little town and lived, born in Bethlehem and lived in Nazareth. And then as Jesus went back to his own hometown in Matthew chapter 13, Matthew 13 at verse 55, those who had known him, I presume from a very early age, as he was teaching them in their synagogues, they, they were just amazed. You can maybe all those pictures in your mind, I mean, they're just sitting there with their jaw wide open. Thank you. Who is this guy? We know him. We know his parents, we know his brothers and sisters, we know his family. Look at what they say in verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Where, where did this man get all this learning and all of this wisdom that is coming out of his mouth? But what I want you to see here this morning is this particular point, that Jesus was a carpenter's son. He was not of royalty. He was not born into nobility or high class socially. He was a son of a carpenter. And all of these and many other passages that we can think about from a physical, worldly, outward perspective or appearance, as we just think about Jesus the Christ... I believe we're sending or should send a powerful message to us about how God sees. That God wasn't interested in his only son, the king of all, coming and looking like a worldly, earthly king. 
No, again, I would say to you that God sees us for who we really are, who we are on the inside, not for who we appear to be outwardly. There is not, I don't believe, an emphasis in Scripture on our outward appearance, not that we should just be uh, look like we don't care about ourselves outwardly, because it does reflect somewhat who we are inwardly. But God is always looking at our hearts. And then I want to make this lesson very personal and very applicable to us as we draw our lesson to a close this morning about how, how do I see, how do you see individually? If we had been in Samuel's shoes, who, who would we have picked to be king if God had given us that task? We, would we have just stopped with Jesse's first son and said, oh, this, this looks like a king. He looks like he would be the perfect man to step into Saul's shoes and to lead God's people from now on. Would you and I have been looking for maybe the tallest or the strongest or the most handsome man to be the next leader of God's people? Would you or I have been looking as best we could discern for the person that had a heart like God's? And again, I realize that's very easy for God to do, to look at our hearts because he created us. That's very difficult for us to do. But I'm suggesting to you this morning in this lesson that if we're going to be true children of God and be like God in every respect, that we've got to start looking at ourselves and we've got to start looking at other people and we've got to start looking at life and all of our circumstances that we are involved in and to look at them not through the eyes of flesh, but to look at them through spiritual eyes to try as best we can to see people and circumstances the way that God does some specific applications, and there, these are numerous, of course. What about in the, the uh, arena of dating or even marriage? For you young folks who are not married yet, and maybe you are dating someone at this point in your life, how do you choose who you're going to date? How do you choose who eventually is going to be your mate, who is, whom you are going to marry if you make that decision to get married? Are you choosing someone to date or to marry based only on the physical appearance? I know that we as, as men, as males, I mean, the way that God designed us, we, we are very visual people. And there's nothing wrong with that. We shouldn't be ashamed of that. We shouldn't try to dismiss that or, or hide that under the rug in, in some way. We need to acknowledge that God has given us or made us that way. But we need to use that in the right way. But are we just basing that very important, one of the most important decisions of our life, especially getting married, based only on the outward appearance of a certain person? Or are we trying to choose our partner for life based upon who they are inwardly and the character that we can see from them? The world would say, you just get the, the person that looks the best to you, that's going to make you happy physically, and that's the person that you need to, to go with. What about when we are faced with choices related to choosing a different job? Do we choose jobs based only on how much it pays or maybe on the status that that job is going to give us in the eyes of the world? Or are we choosing jobs as Christians based on how that job, that work, is going to affect our spirituality? If we're married, how it's going to affect our spouse and their walk with God. If we have children, how it's going to affect our entire family spiritually speaking. What about the friends that we choose? Are we basing choosing friends only based on what they look like or what clothes they wear? Or if you're younger, I, I, I'm not 
too much a car person. My, our middle son really is enamored with cars right now. Maybe they drive a really cool car. All of those things that the, that the world would choose, friends, based on that criteria are we as followers of Christ choosing our friends based upon their values and based upon their goals in life and based upon their character, how they are going to be a help to us spiritually, how we can help them. As the wise man says in the book of Proverbs, how iron can sharpen iron. Is, is that the most critical thing that we are looking for in friends what, what about for us as Christians, even as we're looking at what I would describe as prospects, people that are outside the body of Christ, do, do you and I choose people to share the gospel with based solely on whether they look like me or not? <laughs> or whether at least in my mind, as I get to know them a little bit, they, they seem like they would quote fit <laughs> into this group of Christians here at Fairview Park. If they wouldn't be too much different than we are. Isn't the message of the New Testament that we're to go into all the world and we're to preach the gospel to every person, regardless of what they look like or don't look like on the outside, regardless of what their net worth is, regardless of any of these other physical outward things that we often make judgments on? And on and on, I said to you, this list can go about how we view ourselves and how we view other people around us and just how we view life in general. Are we looking at all of these things from a human perspective? Or are we looking at them from a divine perspective? God told Samuel so long ago that he sees so differently than we do. And in a world that often sees life from man's perspective because as a whole, especially in our culture today, and this kind of goes back to Drew's class this morning, that our American culture as a whole, that we have removed God, we have pushed him out of our thinking. We, we don't want him in our lives. And he is, I think, basically getting to the point where he has said, okay, I, I'm getting out. If you don't want me here, I won't be here. But as we as Christians today live in a world that often sees life only from man's perspective, I know that it is increasingly, increasingly difficult for us to see things as God sees them. And we may be thinking this morning, well, that sounds all good and fine, but how, how does this work practically? You know, I'm not God. I can only see a little slice of this world. God can see the whole cosmos at once. But I would suggest to you that each one of us through this book, his word, if we will look into this book often, if we will allow it to shape our thinking and our living, that we will begin to see life as God sees it. And so let us resolve this week to look at life through God's eyes and not our own. And let us have his vision, his sight when it comes to dealing with life-changing choices. God has made all of us as people in His image, a fact, a truth that increasingly our culture is denying. But if we believe the Bible, we have to believe that. What about you this morning? If you're not a child of God, God does love you because He has made you in His image. And He wants 
He desires to have a relationship with you, but the only way he can have that is if you come to him through his son, Jesus the Christ. Do you need to become a Christian this morning? Do you need to put on Christ in the waters of baptism? If you need to do that, we stand ready to help you. If as a child of God, we have allowed the world, the world's perspective and the world's thinking to uh, creep into our own minds, and we have begun to be more concerned about how we look to the world rather than how we look to God and sin has come into our life, then we need to repent of that. We need to confess that to God. And God will take us back and get back to the, the work that we have of being like Him every day. Whatever your need might be this morning as we're about to sing this song of invitation just as I am. It doesn't matter where you are in life. You can come just as you are. God will take you, but He won't leave you there. He will change all of us so that we see things the way that he sees them, so that we can spend eternity with him forever. Whatever your need might be this morning, if you're subject to the invitation of Christ, won't you come as we stand and sing?